Welcome to Under the Lens. Come and enjoy an extraordinary, raw, and unfiltered podcast that delivers debate, discussions, and interviews about film, pop culture, and everything in between. Here is your host, film critic and journalist, Byron Lafayette. Hey all, and thanks for uh, joining us today for uh, Under the Lens. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Matrix Reloaded today, the uh, controversial sequel to the iconic film, The Matrix. And to discuss this today, I have uh, two of my friends with me today. I have Ryan Wall and Kiefer Wynn. And uh, we're just going to be kind of diving in and uh, just discussing this film. So thanks, guys, for uh, joining us. Yeah, I, I guess let, let's get started with um, just like some uh, some quick like basic thoughts of like you know what did you guys think about this this film? Ryan, why don't you go first? No, yeah, I was going to suggest you do, but uh, since you since you have so graciously said so, um, well, obviously, uh, it, like you said, it's a it's a controversial entry in a franchise where really the only one universally beloved is the first. Um, but I do think it is a very underappreciated film. And I mean, a lot of things are not good compared to the original <laughs> Matrix movie. Um, and so sometimes expectations can be the enemy of the good. And I think uh, The Matrix Reloaded, it is, I mean, far from a perfect film. But it it is a really good film overall. I think it's... Uh, it's got phenomenal action. It's got uh, weighty philosophical angles. It's got decent character and character development and growth. Um, you know, it, it does have its downsides. I think uh, th there is a whole lot of action in this movie and it can feel fatiguing at times. And then there is that's juxtaposed against long scenes where people are just monologuing and, uh, that can uh that can be a bit breakneck for some people for me this kind of thing is right up my alley um so so it doesn't really hurt me very much but i can very very easily imagine the kind of person for whom that w doesn't work at all uh so i think overall uh fairly good film nothing nothing like the phenomenon that was the first one uh but also nothing like the derision you see about it online that's a really great way of putting it, Ryan, uh, talking about the differences between um, expectations and, and reality and also the Internet's um, desire to catastrophize things that it doesn't like. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about The Matrix Reloaded, I actually think of, of Dune, and not just because I want to talk about probably my favorite movie of the year, but because it shows like the difficulty in building out on a really interesting premise. Like the, the further you go along in the Dune book series, you realize how difficult it is to set out a world that can really, uh, really fill out the concepts that you introduce in your first like groundbreaking entry into the franchise. And I think with the Matrix Reloaded, there's a difficulty and that the first one is so phenomenal, it's it's pretty much a perfect movie that when you attempt to build a world around it, you run into some problems. 
Uh, but ultimately, I think the movie is actually really good. I think it's it's a worthy sequel. And yes, I think it falters in a couple of places, but overall, I think as a film, it does what it needs to do. It, it provides a a background to a world that, um, yeah, a world that's very interesting that I, that I want to see more of. And I think that movie and the conclusion of Matrix Revolutions are both really strong films. And they make the Matrix trilogy one of the best trilogies of all time, in my opinion. So I'm happy to talk about the, the great things that are in the Matrix Reloaded and maybe uh, not spend too much time on it, but maybe defend it a little bit against some of the criticisms that uh, have popped up online. So, um, yeah, I rewatched, you know, The Matrix for the first time, probably in, in a few years uh, last night. And, you know, and it, it really did did amaze me in a lot of ways of because you know as you both said you know building on this uh this world is difficult you know because that first film is pretty much as close to a perfect film as you can get you know it just everything about it is just incredible it's a perfect hero's journey uh just everything about the the whole chosen one trope is just perfectly done and i just really loved how the second one really subverted so many expectations, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but like how it just completely subverts the entire idea of like the savior trope. It, it subverts everything about, you know, philosophy and control and what's really going on and the religious prophecy aspects, everything. And I also think that, you know, the Wolkowski's really did an interesting job of building the world out because one thing that really kind of kind of hit me as, as the credits started rolling was that you had a film and a universe that they had built this kind of world and this universe around a story. But at the same time, the story felt very much uh, uh, almost like what do they say in video games on the rails, you know, that it was it was very much going from plot point to plot point. And it, all of the characters that you met and all of the incidences that happened all were directly related to the narrative. You know, there there wasn't a, a lot of these, you know, like what you see now with these Easter eggs for building the greater like cinematic world or anything. It was like all the world building that existed were there to service the characters, were there to service the story being told. And almost it kind of reminded me almost in the in the sense of like a real world video game of how you see this greater world as you're playing it. But then as soon as you leave that area, that world ceases to exist. And that's kind of what I almost viewed with like the Matrix that like. You know, as as he's going out of this area, his instance is ending, and it's starting a new instance. That's a that's an interesting way to look at it. I I think also there's a a through line through this movie that is often missed, um, about the relationship between uh, a mechanistic or or machine. Uh, how to say <laughs> mechanistic or machine uh, methodology and faith and how they can be in some ways similar and in, in, in some ways limited by the same kind of pitfalls, despite being seemingly polar opposites, because we see things throughout this film, like the, the, absolute uh fleshy human uh i'm trying to avoid a dirty word here but uh rave party in zion <laughs> and and uh what you see in the matrix and in the machines which is just pure order 
and and an on rails thinking but at the same time like you have characters like morpheus who are expressing a kind of faith in what essentially amounts to a cosmic code like when you're talking about prophecy in this film you're also talking about an algorithm running its course which is an interesting comparison that is not spelled out i think uh in the dialogue or anything but i think it i think it is in the dna of the film itself um and of course uh culminates in the the whole architect scene but we'll we'll have to uh, revisit that and really really cut into that later <laughs> oh definitely yeah because the there's so much to mine in you know i would say the probably the two the i would say the three most important scenes of it are definitely the architect scene uh, the restaurant scene and um, the courtyard scene, I would say, are probably the the three that creates the bedrock for the for the philosophy of the film. But I, I think it's fascinating what <clears throat> excuse me what you said about you know when it comes to the code and the the religious aspects because that was one thing I found very interesting because Morpheus he's always mentioning like providence and you know he's mentioning the prophecy and such you know but then at the same time like you said everything is very dictated by order and you know almost the programs are almost like, kind of like the gods of this world a little bit and you know and especially once we get to the end when we get there to chat about it that you know you see that that even though so much of this narrative has been controlled by the machines and by the code at the end, there still is that almost slightly religious aspect at the end that you're almost kind of like, Oh, well, maybe is this not a coded, you know, prophecy? Is this something that's maybe more esoteric a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really great way to think about it. Uh, particularly the idea that uh, faith and machine thinking actually are are cousins instead of instead of enemies. Um, yeah, when I when I look at Morpheus and when I look at the counselor's uh, message to Neo about how humans and machines actually rely upon each other in ways that can both be described as controlling. Uh, yeah, you, you you learn to think of, you you think the movie is trying to push you one way by the end of the first matrix and then by the end of uh reloaded you have an entirely different perspective and, and you know i think as a philosophical project it, it has some issues but as a piece of cinema i think it, i think it's really interesting and, and, and it's one of those things that i think we've passed over collectively as a critical community like we've just kind of a, a like we've just kind of uh thrown out the idea that this is a great work of philosophical insight in the same way the first one is because of some of the other issues eventually getting in the way but but by the way i see it i think there's so much content here that we've been talking about already that we should at least appreciate the fact that the the ideas of control and mastery and faith and thinking uh should be given just as a big of audience as the first one got yeah i, th I think it can be easy you know this exists in a in an action genre that is almost extinct now um but it, it can be easy to overlook the fact that we have like things like the chateau sequence or the courtyard fight or the highway sequence 
and and think that okay this is just a, a mindless brawl of you know a movie where the plot is just a vehicle to get to these incredible set pieces um but the thing about the matrix as a franchise you know since the beginning is that yes we have these incredible fascinating fantastical action set pieces but the 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 plot the character the journey the thought into these films it's it's kind of the other way around where our action set pieces are are vehicles to to better understand the conflict and to basically keep us from becoming either bored or oversaturated with with what we're having to think about while engaging with these films and that's kind of a reversal from what you normally expect and so sometimes what that does is create a bit of tonal dissonance that i think this film in particular has um because we do a whole lot of sitting around and then uh and then action that's true what do you what do you think about that Kiefer? yeah I, you know i don't want to be the person that just says hey that's a great point that ryan or byron made but uh <laughs> i feel like i have to point out something when i'm thinking about the fight scenes and i'm thinking about some of the philosophy and the ideas of control and mechanics i've just kind of realized now uh, this is an idea that's kind of been bubbling up in my subconscious but i just kind of now got um got more of like a more of a theoretical understanding of it the way the fight scenes are constructed they show like the central tension of the movie between a world of rules and a world without them and again i know this is something brought up in the first movie um, most specifically the idea of learning there's no spoon blah 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 but the way that the fight scenes add like an undercurrent of philosophical insight into the story while also entertaining us shows just how brilliant the movie is so you're, you're thinking oh well you know we're just watching this great highway fight we're watching this uh uh fight versus the henchmen you know we're watching neo versus a hundred smiths and you know it's it's easy to kind of turn your brain off and just analyze them on the level of physical violence but then you realize that they're also trying to say something about how the type of anomalies that we'll we'll discuss later um or the lack of rules actually looks in the real world so they're trying to show the central tension between like rulemaking and freedom like within their fight scenes while also entertaining us which, which again you just kind of have to tip your hat to that kind of filmmaking and i wanted to make sure i made that point before we move on to something else no definitely and you know uh something else that i i thought of when i was looking at the uh the fight scenes too is there was this video um that i saw on youtube and i watched it uh, when i rewatched the first film and I, I believe it's called the Corridor Crew, I think it's called. Um, and they do like a bunch of like special effects. They're like special effects guys. And so they do a bunch of uh, reviews where they look at films, fight scenes, everything. And then they kind of like give their expertise. And they kind of did like an overview of the Matrix. And they were talking about like how the fight scenes were filmed. And it was really incredible when they had these like stunt men in and everything that they were saying how groundbreaking it was of of, you know, the fights being choreographed with the narrative and just how they were doing it with the actors. It was incredible. And just what uh, Kiefer said kind of reminded me of like, you know, in a lot of the fights, you know, I kind of was, you know, training my eye, like watching to see like, okay, how did they film film this? And one thing that I, I really loved, especially in uh, in Reloaded, was that 
there was so many scenes where they really tried to show the face of the of the actor so that you could tell that they wanted the actor to do as much of the action as possible um you know because there was a few scenes you know with uh, some of the the smith fight and all that where you could tell there was like a stunt man that had, t- had taken over you know but then there was other times you could see like they were they were panning completely around on like reeve's face you know and some of the other ones and i was very impressed with that 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 they really put in an effort to make it as real as possible you know and then of course you get the uh some of the CGI type stuff that, that goes in. <laughs> um, one thing that I, I read on Reddit, this was a, a really funny theory, but somebody said, yeah, the, the graphics get a little wonky during the Smith fight. And somebody uh, responded and they said, well, I like to think of this as that this type of combat is not supposed to happen in the matrix. And so the matrix is glitching out as they're fighting. And I thought, Oh, I, I love that, that idea. It's buffering. So it went to a lower quality. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's probably on the Comcast lag. i I think also um we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that uh a a lot of the things that happen in these films of course is you know we're happening they're happening in a machine and so some things that seem to have absolutely no logic have logic if you think of it as a machine for example smith himself like I can imagine somebody going, well, you know, why are there now a hundred Smiths in a courtyard? And if you think about it, it's a, it's a worm cluster virus, uh, which the whole purpose of it is it goes into the data. It copies itself repeatedly and corrupts other data to again, copy itself repeatedly. And it's ironic too, that Smith would become a computer virus given that what he compared humanity to in the first matrix is a virus. So that's uh that's the kind of thought that goes into this stuff. Like it's not just, Oh, wouldn't it be neat if we had 200 Hugo weavings right now? <laughs> you know? Oh, returning to the idea of uh, getting attached to these characters by showing their face. One of the things that's really strong uh, in the fight scenes are the length of the scenes, like the length between cuts. Like you get to grow, there's a sense of, uh, of weight to the, to the fight scenes that can only come through extended uh, choreography that isn't cut short by a clap, by a cut every half second. Like we, we get to see like a ten, the tension of the fight scenes, like whether it's between Neo and, and Seraph, because we're we're seeing the way that their movements are begun and ended. And in most fight scenes, especially now, everything is cut so quickly that you can't really follow the action. All you have is a sense of of movement. But with the Matrix, again, they're attaching us to these characters by allowing us to see the end results and the beginnings of their actions and how their, their physical bodies are, are represented. Like it, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to, uh, to, to navigate. Like as, as a viewer, you're like, well, this is almost disconcerting. I remember watching it earlier this week and thinking they're focusing on these characters for like 10 to 15 seconds, sometimes even longer. We're seeing them actually fight. We're not just seeing the end result of an action and then the next one starting, then cutting to the end result of another one. We're seeing an actual fight scene play out. And that's just super cool. Like, again, we, we get to feel the weight of every action and every fight because we're seeing it, for the most part, the whole way through. 
And again, that's something that we don't see a lot of in modern filmmaking. So that's one of the reasons why some of the characters in modern films, especially the action ones, just aren't as compelling. Like the quick cut idea is separating us from appreciating these characters. I, I completely agree with you. And that is one thing I, I really liked throughout the entire, you know, Matrix films, but especially this one, I, the length is something that really does grab you, you know, because just thinking back, you know, to like the the end of the uh, the freeway scene, you know, where you have, uh, you know, Morpheus is fighting um, the agent and, you know, and it's just, you know, a faceless agent, whatever, but it's like, it's an extended fight. And what you know, I felt that there was like so much tension with that because, you know, we've been told throughout the first film and in the second one that like these agents are unbeatable, that, you know, that basically, you know, Neo is the only one who can go toe to toe with them and survive. And so but you see, you know, Morpheus, who he's giving his everything in order to fight this character. And he knows that he's probably going to die, that this is, you know, he's just trying to, you know, bide his time. He's, he's hoping with his faith that Neo is going to come and save him. But at the same time, he knows maybe that's not going to happen. And that kind of tension just grows so much as you're fighting that because you're like, you know, something has to happen because this isn't going to end well for him. Yeah. And, and I, I love the um, that there's I, I think of the freeway as the ultimate realization of the horror that was in the concept of the the girl in the red dress program. Um in the in the original because you you think of these agents being able to pop in basically like override anybody's login you know and take over from there so the freeway is an incredibly dangerous place to be because any driver on that road can be an agent at any moment and so, like it, it to me comes across as the ultimate fulfillment of that threat that we we got a pretty good understanding of in the first one. No, exactly, and I think that you know um, it's funny you mentioned that because that was a great line that they said that you know that that they kind of hope that you you get it just through the impliedness of the story when they say like you know oh you know Morpheus you always said never go on the freeway. You know, and it was kind of a joke, of course, you know, that like, oh, you know, you don't go on the freeway in L.A., you know, so there's kind of a joke there. Yeah. But at the, but at the same time, it's exactly what you said, that there's no escape, basically, you know, every single one around you. And there is that horror with, you know, the semi trucks, you know, and everything that they're just constantly popping in. And, uh, you know, and, and then that's compounded, of course, with the uh, with the twins, you know, who are just like, you know, horrifying villains, just like amazingly constructed. And interestingly enough, like, and, and maybe this, I don't know, doesn't doesn't strike you all as much as it strikes me, but I think there's like a real world uh, kind of comparison between the fact that get on a highway, everyone could be possibly constro- controlled by the machines, by the Smiths, or by the agents, um, while they're pursuing um, Trinity and Morpheus. And in real life, again, a freeway is comprised of people following very strict rules mm. um, with seeming amounts of autonomy um, that again has incredibly immense amounts of danger every single day that we simply don't think about and so I think like the the Wachowski's bringing out the sense of danger in a place that you know we all kind of subconsciously recognize as dangerous but don't understand necessarily that it's it's kind of similar to how the matrix operates 
I don't know, maybe I'm bending spoons too much here, but I, I can find like a similarity <laughs> between uh, between like working, like living, like uh, driving on a freeway now, again, with our relative safety and then the type of menace that actually uh, is chasing Trinity and Morpheus. I don't know. It, it seems like there's something there. I'm not exactly sure if they intended it that way, but I, I can squint and kind of see that idea. And that's it's been really intriguing to me uh, ever since I rewatched it a couple of nights ago. Well, and and to to wrap that together a little more, you know, the the whole purpose of a freeway is to route people to their destination, and there are predetermined forks in the path. You can choose between the forks, but you can't choose the forks. You know, you know. So a highway or a freeway is a place that has a bit of determinism and a bit of choice. You know, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, point that you make, Ryan, because I think that kind of goes back a little bit to what Kiefer was saying about, you know, the, the freeway being almost like a picture of life because it almost kind of goes a little bit towards what um, the Oracle said about how you've already made your choice, but now you have to understand why you made it. And I almost kind of feel like that goes a little bit with what you were saying with the freeway, that there is choice there. There's forks that you go on. But for the most part, when you get on the freeway, you know where you're going and you're going to a set location, Morpheus. And then we're going to the underpass to get out, you know, and then basically as they went, they were they were faced with the consequences of that choice and basically having to understand why they made it. Yeah, that's that's really great, Ryan. I'm glad you were able to kind of tie that together. It's an, again, it's these like subconscious ideas that the movie is so good at eliciting um, and elucidating, even after some thought. Um, again, it just shows why this movie is so special. Yeah, and I I think it doesn't necessarily need to be fully intended for for it to be valuable. Um, I think that's something we miss a lot in in film criticism that there are interpretations of films that may not be intended yet may still be valid. So even if we are stretching a little bit, I don't think that the stretching is, is uh, outside of the realm of fair play with regard to the source material in front of us. That's more than fair. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think I think that that's that is extremely fair because it, it is interesting because I feel like in the last few years, you know, I mean, especially the last five to eight years as kind of the the whole like Internet reviewing kind of has exploded, you know, um, and you've kind of seen, you know, the 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 film criticism world was very small, you know, as of, you know, I would say from, you know, 2010 onward, I mean, uh, from uh, before 2010, you know, it was people at print publications, you know, and that was about it. And it was a very closed off ecosystem. And then as the internet has exploded, now we're seeing a lot more opinions coming in. And I think that that does give to, you know, a lot of sometimes, like you said, maybe a little bit of stretching, but at the same point, you know, you can find and discover things that maybe were intended, but, you know, maybe still work, you know, um, I feel that's happened a lot with some of the the superhero movies, you know, of the past few years and people are like, Hey, I, I found this little like Easter egg here. I don't know if it's real or not, but it, it's real to me, you know, or even in, in, 
you know, such weighty, you know, philosophical films as the rise of Skywalker, you know, just joking. Fit in my tea, man. Yeah. Why did you do that? <laughs> oh, man, I actually might, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I might actually cut that out and have that be our cold open. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, but, uh, but yeah, you know, um, one thing too, that, uh, uh, I was going to mention earlier and then I, then, um, we got into some other topics was, you know, that, uh, that Kiefer had mentioned about how, you know, that this second film reloaded that the philosophical aspects were a little bit more obvious than the first one. And I was almost wondering if that was partially because the first film did have, you know, very weighty subjects. I mean, you know, extremely, you know, with the, with the idea of waking up and all that, but I almost wondered if because, you know, Western audiences had not really been exposed to the level of action and the type of action that the first film had, that a lot of those topics kind of went over a lot of people's heads because they were so focused on the visuals, where when Reloaded came in, you know, it was kind of like people were a little bit more used to how the film was constructed, a little bit more used to the action and stuff. So then they were able to focus a little bit more on maybe the message, perhaps. That's a really important point, Byron. I think um, this is ultimately the, the the conversation around Reloaded shows like the the the, diff- the difficulty of following up something successful. Um, because I think again, you know, even though everyone praises the five scenes in Reloaded, people don't approach them with the same level of awe that they approach the filmmaking of the first one, right? Um, they, they they kind of just kind of accept it as, okay, the fight scenes were great, and then they go on to discuss the things that they don't like. Like, I'm sure, like, if you took, you know, a microscope to other elements of the of the first Matrix, you could find a couple of, of soft spots in the, in the storytelling and in the philosophical uh, ideas. But with the second one, people just kind of accept that, hey, the fight scenes are great, and they're innovative, and they're some of the best ever put on film, and then they just kind of move on right past it. But I think... We would we're doing ourselves a disservice when we kind of move right past that and don't sit with the idea that this is still some of the best like physical choreography we've seen in Western film. So yeah, you're exactly right. There's a there's a, some victimizing here of the film's legacy by people who simply accept the good things about the movie as a given. Like hey, they're going to do this well, so we're just going to go ahead and appreciate that. But then really quickly, let's get into the stuff that doesn't hold up as well or doesn't suit our sensibilities. So yeah, you're, you're right. The movie does kind of suffer from the success of the first. Yeah. I, I think um, <laughs> there's a goodness. It's a, you, you, you stated it so well, but it's like, there's a little bit of been there, seen that in the mind of some people where it's like, Oh, the first one was groundbreaking. And the second one was just building off what the first one did. But you got to understand that this is coming from the same creators. So, yes, the first one was groundbreaking. But why would you expect the second one in the same franchise to be groundbreaking in a completely different direction? Um, I don't think that's a reasonable expectation to have. But even, even so, even within the constraints of, oh, we're going to have um, very Asian-influenced action sequences that are 
that because it's taking place in a simulation feature feats of physical violence that are actually impossible but we're going to have fun with it in this virtual world like even within that framework that the first one set out you're still dealing with top tier well choreographed well shot incredibly well executed action sequences even the ones we don't always think about you know the the trinity sequences in the beginning and in the end or um i think probably the most underrated fight sequence in this entire trilogy is that chateau brawl with all the weapons on the walls and stuff that absolutely is fantastic 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 scene i 100 agree <laughs> and 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 people just gloss over it like it oh of course it's the matrix so of course it's going to be great but that's not a given no 100 and the chateau fight is is incredible and i really like that that specific scene too because I feel like it really does help to build on Neo's character and it really helps to build on his, his power and skill set. you know, that because, you know, it doesn't necessarily introduce new powers to him, you know, or say like, Oh wow, he suddenly can do this. Um, but it showcases just how much more skill he is in the first, uh, in the first film, you know, we see him blocking, you know, the bullets from Smith and the other agents. And in this one, in this scene, we see he's blocking all of the bullets from like, you know, five submachine guns, you know, and, you know, one thing, though, that I really I really did like about that scene, too, was I loved that they included uh, the cut on his hand. I really liked that, you know, because, you know, you're seeing him as this, you know, as basically, you know, computer Jesus, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and you know, you're, you're seeing him doing all these feats. But then I love that they just slip in there. Hey, he's just human still. You know, he still has these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities. And yes, he could still maybe die. I don't know. We saw him die once before, but maybe he could die again. Maybe he could die again. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me ask you a question real quick, um, uh, Byron, just about something you said a little earlier. Did you say that you felt like people were arguing that the philosophical ideas of Reloaded were more or less original than the ones in the first? Oh, that's a good point. Um, I think you said obvious. Yeah, I, I want to say, yeah, it was more like it, it was obvious, yeah, that that I feel like the people that people didn't fully grasp the ideas in the first one because it was it was more you know shielded by this fantastic action you know where where the second one it is more obvious you know because you know you, you've seen some of this stuff before a little bit um you know and also I mean I feel like you know uh, the Wachowskis they they were more obvious in this one I mean you know what other blockbuster action film can you remember where you have a scene in a French restaurant that's like seven minutes long, all about cause and effect and choice, you know, and that's the entire scene. You don't see that ever in action films. And the monologue from computer God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh, that model. I mean, that, that's another thing. It's like, okay, you look at this, this is a blockbuster action franchise and literally the climax of the second chapter is a monologue. Like, there's no big let's have this brawl fight scene. It's an old guy in a room talking to someone. That's your climax. <laughs> it's a let security me, let me guard, Colonel Sanders. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, well, Keeper. Add to that, like the uh, when when you say something like the physical, like the philosophical ideas are more obvious. I think you're exactly right, and I think the underrated reason why is because that's how it has to be for two reasons. First, because it's it's a sequel, and in the first you get to innovate, and in the second you have to explain. But I think the most important reason why is that these ideas of determinism and of control uh, means that every single thing has to follow on a path that follows logically from the thing that happened before. So when we're when we're discussing like the philosophical ideas of Reloaded, um, once you have the the uh, the principles understood from the first, it's just going to have to go one one way. Like you'll be able to explicate everything by what happens before. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why people believe that the philosophical ideas are plotting in the second one. They think that they're they're obvious and that they may not even be that original or interesting. And they're right. But the reason why that is, is because that's how determinism works. You're not going to be doing a lot of innovating if you can simply explain everything about what happens before. So I, I think that there's 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 some there's some value to the lack of originality in in Reloaded, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, I think also we're gonna keep coming back to the architect scene, uh, but you kind of have to. It's the linchpin of the entire film. Um, but a lot of our explanation and exposition of this, and and part of the reason it feels so obvious and also a bit tedious is coming from the mind and the aptly named architect, right? It is not intuitive. It is a 100% thinking AI construct. It is concerned with clockwork, you know? Like, it is a deterministic thinker, and it is giving us the most precise, most obvious, most spelled out, most predetermined, most cog in the machine explanation for everything that we see in this film. You know, and it is explicitly a counterpoint to the vague human intuition of the Oracle program. You know, that the mother of the Matrix, who it embodies more of those motherly uh and i don't mean this the way it sounds but chaotic elements that are more human and in touch with the the uh, pathos of humanity whereas the architect and as an extension the matrix reloaded as a whole is more the the logos it is the logic moving everything forward it is uh, it is in a way like a freeway. <laughs> there is a preset forward path that must that it must go on. It's not going to deviate, and it's going to be in a way tedious, you know. And I think that the that is in a way the entire thesis of the film. And when most of our exposition is coming from a character that is a machine explaining machine determinism it's going to feel a more obvious be less free you know and 
that that has consequences in that it's hard to watch sometimes uh, for some people not not even for me necessarily you know I, sometimes i just watch the architect scene just to just to watch it uh, but uh but that particular viewpoint in this film does make it more obvious does make it more streamlined no i definitely i definitely agree and i think that it's very interesting because you know what you were saying of like you know the architect it's this cold logic you know it's a it's just like you said cog in a machine oh this is the sixth iteration oh of course you're supposed to come and see me that's what's supposed to happen and and I think that, you know, a lot of people might say, well, of course, I, I could see a mile away he was going to save Trinity and he wasn't going, to, you know, he was going to make that decision. But I think that that obvious choice is kind of what made that scene so interesting because we weren't, that scene isn't playing out from a human point of view. That we're not looking at that from Neo's point of view because, of course, he was always going to save Trinity. We were looking at that from the point of view of this godlike machine that to the machine, he was never going to choose Trinity because of course, if the choice is, Hey, go and save the human race, you know, fulfill your purpose. And that's another point that comes over and over again through this film of all the programs, everyone's saying, I have a purpose and I'm supposed to do something so that when Neo, you know, and when he doesn't even blink, you know, he doesn't even, even decide, Hey, what am I going to do? He immediately turns <laughs> and goes through the door to save Trinity and basically doom the human race and almost in a sense, kind of believe in himself that he's going to be this, he's going to be the messianic figure that is going to save everybody against all. He almost begins to believe what Morpheus believed, even though he was told it was a code. There's a subconscious part in him that says, I can save everybody. And I just, I loved that point of view that it was from the point of view of the machines, not from the, from the human. Yeah, that explains so much. Like, ha like forcing a human to think like a machine is going to be oppressive. There's just no other way to think about it. Uh, if you take a human's uh, belief and intuition and free will and force them to follow the cold, remorseless logic of the determinist, deterministic closed system, it's going to take some of the enjoyment out of it. Like, I, and again, I think adopting the line of reasoning that you just gave, Byron, what, what will allow a lot of people to appreciate the movie's depth more. Because, yeah, you're asking a human to think like a machine. And as soon as you do that, you remove a, like a lot of like visceral enjoyment from it because it does all become remorseless. You can see the end from the beginning. And, you know, a lot of the fun in the journey uh, is on the path, not necessarily the destination. Yeah. I think also, too, when we talk about, uh, I think, uh, Pathos and Logos are, are a good way of of understanding the, the dichotomy in this film and the dichotomy between the architect and the oracle. And we were talking about the failures of people to understand and invest in and feel stimulated by machine thinking. But the irony is the entire plot is telling us that the whole reason for the Matrix's ultimate doom and failure is because of the machine inability to do the exact opposite. Um, the architect talks about anomalies, and he tried to eliminate the anomaly, could not do it, and that the, the Oracle program was brought in to help correct the anomaly. 
And even so, like six iterations, very good record. Granted, however, you know, in grand scheme of things, six is not a lot of iterations before things go horribly off the rails. So even their best attempt at into uh, intuition on a human scale is not able to correct this cold system. You know, after the sixth time, that's that's uh, something that I think is the conclusion of the thesis of this film, which is that we have these deterministic and free will ideas in conflict one another with one another. We have this uh, cold, uh, cold logos and this warm pathos in conflict with one another. And Neo, it appears, chooses the pathos, but is, is embodying more of the, the ethos idea, the, the, the synergy, the core essence of humanity with the ability to think and the ability to feel. And I, I think also I'm going to um, relate this to a movie we all love um, or movie trilogy we all love. Um, the concept of Neo being the first one whose love for humanity was specific to a person is very similar to me. I know where you're going with this and I love it. Yes, it's similar to me to the concept in Zack Snyder's Superman trilogy we have where that Superman's love of humanity is not incredibly abstract and, and general to all humanity, but is focused on his love of Lois. And I think in both cases, in both The Matrix and Zack Snyder's trilogy, that's more real to people. That's more understandable for these messiah-like figures and i i think that uh gosh that is that is a great point that both of these very different films made or film trilogies have made yeah that is a great point that you that you made and i love that you that you did tie that back to, to superman because i think that is it is such a great it's a great example you know because you know, it is it is difficult sometimes to, you know, like you said, with the abstract idea of all of humanity. And, you know, when you look at like Neo, he is, you know, I mean, they even make the comment like, oh, he's doing his Superman thing you know, that uh, <laughs> that he is it is this kind of Superman character. And, you know, his power, his skill set he has, you know, even when he's outside of the Matrix you know, and he's in Zion, you know, they're giving him gifts. They're basically worshiping him, you know, oh, protect my son or daughter, you know, and these are people who believe in him, even though once he gets out of the matrix, he seemingly doesn't have any power. We, of course, find out at the end that he does actually have something. We can get to that in a little bit of, of you know, of going a little bit more from the code to the religious aspect. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's a great point of, of tying it to one person versus, uh, uh, versus humanity. And I think that if, you know, in the real world, you know, like, you know, if we had somebody who was alive, who was as powerful as someone like Neo or like Superman, they would need to be tied to one person, you know, because, you know, it's what they always say, absolute power corrupts, you know, and having, you know, Lois having Trinity, uh, those two individuals were what kept them pure and on the straight and narrow, so to speak.
One uh, one scene that I um, and it kind of leads off a little bit from this that I, I would like to discuss a little bit too is the um, uh, the one of the other philosophical scenes um, is the restaurant scene. You know that um, that I think it's such you know or aka some people call it the horny scene. You know <laughs> the bonk scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bonk scene. Um, but it's such a, an incredible scene because we talked about it a little bit before about how most action films do not have these long, you know, monologues of, of, uh, philosophical discussion. But I think that it kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with the architect and this kind of cold reasoning of a machine, but we see a machine that's a little bit, you know, different, you know, than, than the architect he's out for himself and is very much of a, he almost does somewhat believe in his own twisted version of free will in some ways, in the sense of that you aren't making the decision, but he believes he's making the decision and creating that cause and effect. And so I thought that scene was very interesting. Yeah. I, um, as someone that believes like in, in, in actual like free will, like I, I have philosophical objections to it. But as a, a film critic who wants to appreciate the movie on its own terms, I think it did a really good job of setting up all of the, the issues that are going to go through, not just Reloaded, but all the way through to, Revol- to Revolution. Uh, listening to the way that they broke down these like really intense, like heady philosophical discussions to really bite-sized portions. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you got what I did there, yeah. So they they, they, uh, <laughs> they broke all this stuff down to bite-sized portions, and uh, I, I think like for people that were coming in expecting that action movie vibe, they uh, they got a little more than they bargained for. Hopefully, and if they were looking for it, they got it explained in a way that made sense to them. And if I can add like a amendment to your your earlier point, I think that not only do a lot of action movies not have this type of philosophical uh, insight or ambition, but especially now they lack an erotic or really romantic like tension to them. It's it's almost like, it's like, it's weirdly like asexual violence, Hmm. but it, but here in reloaded, they, they, they tie like the ideas of menace and, 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 uh, erotic um attraction and control into ways that actually kind of mimic the way that sexuality it, it can be in real life right like that like there's like a like a human application to what's happening with the merovingian because sometimes sex is tied into power it's tied into control it's tied into menace so however you want to differentiate it um in the real world or diffuse it into the real world those elements can all still be there as well. So I, I think like not only do action movies not have a real problem with philosophical ideas, they also have a real issue with like anything like involving like a sexual desire that isn't just like explicitly corrupt or made for, you know, I don't know, like a, a pleasure. Yeah. 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 So I think like the matrix was suddenly puck was suddenly uh, like poking fun at those at, at those kind of movies as well yeah i mean you have um uh, we're adults here we'll get into it i guess <laughs> <laughs> you, you have um 
of course the the in the the uh incredibly large orgy in the beginning of the <laughs> film uh which expresses you know the full gamut of human sexuality which i expect no less than from the Wachowskis to do so but you know that's that generalized idea and then we get specific to um the Merovingian's uh spurned lover Persephone who just wants to be the focus of someone again to be loved again or you know and which is an interesting thing for a machine to feel <laughs> to begin with um and and all these programs around the Merovingian were supposed to have been deleted because they've either lived past their use or become corrupted and I think in a way have contrary to the Merovingian's assertions otherwise have been in some ways freed uh by not having a specific on rails purpose anymore um of course they they were freed into that and then immediately ensnared by the merovingian so you know <laughs> it's not it's not a total freedom um but you, you know that the idea then that we express causality through digitally invoked orgasm is uh is a, a tie-in to that uh to that sexuality that that Kiefer was talking about and then of course we have the apex of the film is about a um not uniquely I think uh erotic is a better word in in the truest sense of the 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 word uh not uh not the common usage today but you know eros in in greek with you know passion and not just sex but we have that personified in the relationship with uh with neo and trinity which again goes from the general of the orgy at the beginning to the specific of the relationship of uh neo and Trinity and and this dichotomy between the general and the and the specific has one more parallel in this movie, which is between our secret main antagonist, <laughs> uh, Agent Smith, and Neo. Well, Smith now, not not so much Agent anymore, but uh, which is ironic because as he gains his agency, he loses his Agent moniker. Um. <laughs> Now that I think about it, but Neo is the one singular and, and in a way Smith is the many generalized, you know, widespread, not singular, you know, just rampant. Um, and, and then of course we add on to the top, on top of that, like I said, he's become a computer virus irony of ironies giving his monologue in the previous film but viruses also reproduce asexually so the enemy is an asexual methodical monster or you know if we want to uh really strike a blow the enemy is an asexual violence of a sort <laughs> 
That's actually a really good a good point about Smith. You know, when when you when you talk about the violent nature, because when he reproduces himself, it's in a it's in a violent state. You know that you know whether he's taking over a person or an agent or Morpheus or trying to take over you know Neo and stuff. It's in it's invasive. Yeah, I I love what you said about Smith and the the idea of violent uh, reproduction. Uh, again, like I I think whether that it's intended or not like that that notion that a lot of action movies have where the only type of like romantic love they have is either some like creepy like kind of violent um sexual activity or or nothing at all the the, the, the i think the Wachowskis have the courage to po- poke fun of that and say this is what it looks like like on on, on like on a micro, micro microscopic level like the thing that you're advocating for these movies is just like the brutality of violence and refusing to extend that to the other places where the quality matters as well. Um, so again, I, I just, again, tip my hat to them for, for, for doing that if they did it on purpose. And if not, it's just simply something that's so evident there that I think we should be taking uh, more insight from it. But no, yeah, like I think that, you know, that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, with with Smith and, and Neo in the second film, you know, because obviously Smith is very much the central antagonist of the first film. And he's very obviously the antagonist of the third one as well, you know, where he's not completely obvious as being the main villain, you know, really of the second one. But the whole aspect of the dynamic between the two of them is so very interesting. And I think is, is so much elevates him from being just your standard menace villain, you know, because as you kind of said of him, him turning into the very thing that he detests about humanity, you know, that he, that his entire reasoning for exist was this purpose to remove viruses. And then suddenly for all intents and purposes, he becomes human almost, you know, because he even says, you know, when he when he comes up to Neo in the in the courtyard, he says, you know, somehow I don't know how you did it. You copied on to me or something that he says, you know, he he had this reasoning for wanting to live. He didn't return to the source. You know, he uh, after he was, you know, I guess, quote unquote, killed or deleted or, or whatever. Um, and uh, and so I found that that very, very interesting of seeing him grow as a character and as an antagonist that that he he basically just lives to consume now exactly what that speech was in the first one where he said of humans they consume they move on to the next and they consume and that's exactly what he has become now Kiefer, do you got something here uh yeah uh i mean i always have a little bit but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean talking about how smith starts to move towards neo and neo starts to move towards smith uh, again, I think it's you know it's a bit of a trope in action movies or in these long form series where the antagonist and the protagonist you know they, tar- this, they take steps toward each other to, to each become more dangerous to the other. And I was watching a video that says that said that um, instead of reducing Neil's power somehow to provide real stakes, what they did by giving Smith the ability to to replicate himself so freely and to act humanely in a sense, they brought the threat to Neo physically in a way that most action movies don't. Like most action movies will show that the protagonist has unlimited power and can defeat any foe 
But in order for them to really be tested, something goes drastically wrong. Maybe they, maybe their gun runs out of bullets. Maybe they have suffered injuries over the course of their fighting. Here, the Wachowskis subvert expectations by allowing another antagonist to really move towards the protagonist in a way that doesn't decrease the protagonist's power, but increases the antagonist's power. Well, and so as they move towards each other, he becomes a true threat to Neo physically without something about Neo having to be nerfed. Fantastic. I, I love that. And also I'll add to that one thing I love, right? Because I, I there's a, a, a trope of equal opposites. Um, you see it all the time in superhero film or even just in comics in general, like you see Superman, General Zod, you know, they have basically identical power sets. You have Spider-Man, you have Venom, you have uh, uh, Wolverine, you have Sabretooth, you know, like it's a good way to, to have an antagonist that doesn't do exactly what you talked about, Kiefer, about not uh, taking from the hero. Uh, but in in the other sense, it can it can kind of run stale. It, I'm not saying it can't be done right. Obviously, all those examples I laid out have good versions of that playing out. So I, I'm not saying it can't be done right. But I'm saying one fascinating thing about the Matrix trilogy, at least in the second and third one, is with with Smith being the counterpoint to Neo, instead of just making him you know neo but bad they made him incredibly different and still scaled him up in power so and part of that is that dichotomy between uh neo's singularity and identity and and smith's sheer numbers multiplicity of identity but i I think that it, it should be noted that rather than trying to make smith an exact copy of Neo in a suit and tie, they decided to make Smith something completely other than Neo and yet still capable of standing toe-to-toe and go blow-to-blow with him. No, definitely. And I, you know, I enjoyed how, how, as you mentioned, that they scaled up Smith but they also, like I said, they didn't tear down Neo. Both of them scaled up power-wise in this film. You know, that, you know, you see, you know, Smith able to pop up anywhere. He's replicating himself. Um, he's going for the main the main frame of the machines as well as Neo. They have, you know, similar goal. But then at the end, you know, you see that Neo's power level has massively increased, you know, because they say, oh, something's coming in. I've never seen anything move that quickly. You know, and then you see when he's flying, you know, that he, you know, that the entire gravity of the world is like shifted and, you know, he's just carrying this like, you know, titanic weight of destruction just behind him as he's flying through, you know, and it it was, it was very cool, you know, and like you said, it was nice not seeing, not seeing Neo being beat down, you know, again, or something in this film that he was presented with a more philosophical challenge to overcome versus a physical one. Let me add something in this as well, like as an example, because what we're saying, you know, is it's really good, but it's also kind of theoretical. Like for me, I think people, when they make the Jesus comparison with Neo, they think of him 
you know, as, as unbeatable and untouchable, and they don't understand exactly how Agent Smith becomes a threat. And I think that the most concrete example is people see Neo fighting 100 Smiths, they see him kicking all the Smiths around, and they think to themselves, I think maybe sometimes some subconsciously, that this is Neo fighting a bunch of Smiths, and not what I think is more accurate, which is to say, Neo is putting his full strength against Smith's strength. It isn't like Smith is just like one person and they're all just, you know, I'm saying this poorly, but it's not just one person that's fighting him individually. The Smiths represent uh, the former Agent Smith's entire power. Like that's his power. He's fighting Neo with his power, not like just physical copies of himself. So when they're going back and forth there, like the fact that Neo is, you know, spin kicking one particular agent out of the way is not a true representation of what of how titanic the actual struggle is the struggle represents the things that they can each do like neo isn't rep- isn't replicating himself and smith isn't that like physical force it's two separate types of forces that forces that are fighting like in that court- courtyard and that's why it's so interesting like again i think people don't don't consciously register the fact that it is not simply neo versus a hundred antagonists it's him fighting against the type of power that Smith is able to bring to bear at any point in the Matrix. And that would, that's what makes it so interesting and philosophical to me and why it's a good piece of writing to give Smith a different power. So again, I hope for people that are listening, that kind of makes some sense to you. Yeah, that, that does. I, I think what you're getting at is that uh, even though it's a mass of Smiths, it is still, his, his, and his threat is still just Smith. Like, <laughs> which sounds contradictory but uh but that's but it's not and we're also unclear of one thing like um and we see we're skipping ahead a bit here but in in uh revolution we see um we see uh neo engage with smith one on one and that seems to be a fairly equal contest of strength but it's unclear if these smith copies are just an avatar paste over another person and they just have that person's abilities with smith's face you know like is he essentially using meat puppet variations or is he is each one of those uh, to use a theological term that is also in this movie, is it sort of like the Trinity, <laughs> where like <laughs> each Smith is Smith, but is also not the other Smith? Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, uh, do each of them have their own unique identity and personhood in and of themselves? Are they more like a hive mind? Are they a hive mind that's just using meat puppet bodies, or are each of them equal copies? doesn't matter which one is the original you know like these are questions we don't have answers to that that is true and it it is something that i i did wonder i i do feel like there is a there is some sort of individuality with each one like i don't know like you said exactly of how much like you know because at the same time you know it is kind of the we are legion type thing you know like they are all smith but at the same time, it's, um, in this film, you do see the individual Smiths doing individual actions, you know, 
like when, you know, when that one agent has taken over, you know, and he responds to him, he's like, oh, you know, I am too, you know, or something. And jumping ahead, you know, to revolutions. I do remember in the final scene when you're seeing uh, Neo and Smith face off and you see like the, the, you know, the millions of Smiths all around as it's panning over them, you do see them doing individual little things. You see one fixing his tie. You see another one kind of looking up or looking down or whatever. And I don't know how much of that is, is like you said, it's just like program. <laughs> it's just a program making a move that way. Oh, or how if much it's supposed of the original to be, you know. program he copied over is still in that thing. I, I just don't know. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Well, no, it, that, that's a great point. Uh, what do you uh, feel about that, Kiefer? I think that's exactly exactly uh, the question that I have. Like I, I, I feel like there is some level of indiv- individuality, but there's also the larger measure of control that one Smith can use over all the others, and that to me makes the most sense because it feeds right into the to the ideas that the Matrix trilogy is trying to get us to understand the idea of control. And even with individuality and what the architect called anomaly. So, yeah, it makes sense to me that there would be some small level of individuality and that the Smith could control these, you know, somewhat free floating individual physical representations of himself uh, without exerting like complete control. Again, that that's again, like a maybe a little less uh, opaque way of saying what the architect says like they are still exerting full control even with the presence of anomaly and the illusion of free choice so the smiths like doing these kind of like ephemeral actions like uh adjusting their ties or or making faces even having conversations those things don't represent who is actually in charge in my opinion uh, who they're not in charge of their own self the smith is and Whatever the level of that is, I'm not sure, but from the way that they interact and the way that they fight, the way that they have like their own like, specific ways of doing Smith's bidding, I think it's fair to say that he, um, that he, that he's the one in control to the to the largest degree possible. And whatever the other percentage is, I don't know, but it makes most sense to say that you know he's the one calling the shots. <laughs> and is this, in a sense, a metaphor, like just like you know? anyone unfreed in the matrix is potentially an agent um is the idea of the smiths and their alleged or apparent autonomy from one another is that sort of a metaphor for this you know this deterministic idea with particular regard to machines um that each one of them is in a way different, but at the core, they're the same. There's, you know, predetermined to do what their, whatever their purpose to do is, you know? Um, and I, these are questions that I have. I, I, I don't know that there's a specific answer to this. I'm just, you know, free balling here in front of you guys. But um, are we supposed to, when we see the Smiths acting, obviously independent uh but you know obviously directed at the same time uh is is that sort of a commentary on the idea that each one of us is in a way you know if if we're not free in the system we're not 
we're not only potentially an agent, but we are a smith with a specific purpose. We are different only on a superficial level. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. <laughs> Thinking about it that way really raises the profile of Smith as an antagonist. Like to be able to control that many like instantiations, like with some measure of individualized or better yet localized control. Because if you watch like the the courtyard fight, the Smiths all have the same purpose, but they're they're not all throwing punches at the same time. They're not all like kick like kicking at the same time or moving at the same pace. They're not even in the same place. Like they're doing separate things, but to be able to like direct those indiv- those localized movements to one end goal again it just it just makes smith a lot more of a threat in my opinion and ties him into the themes of the film too because we don't know how autonomous each of those smiths are just like we don't know how autonomous neo actually is and it's it seems immediately obvious to us that smith is sort of like a hive mind where you know I don't know if let's call him Smith prime, the original <laughs> one. If, if Smith prime was destroyed, do all the other Smiths go offline or are all of them Smith prime and none of them are Smith prime? Like, you know, these are, these are questions we don't, we don't necessarily have answers to. And even, even with revolutions, you might think, Oh, there is a Smith prime and the other ones go away. If that one's destroyed, May not be true, um, because it, could any one of them be the, the prime smith, or is there a specific one? You know, like, I think that kind of goes against the, the ethos of what smith is at this point, if if there is a specific one and all the rest are just lifeless decoy copies. It's like, I, I feel like all of them are and none of them are at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I, I think that uh, I think that 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 is kind of correct because there is obviously some type of centralized Smith program in the sense because you yeah. do see in the new one coming out, Resurrections, that Smith is back. You know, he has a new face, you know, and stuff. But in like the new trailers, they make it very obvious. Hey, this is this is Smith, you know, um, and he seems to have some kind of memory of before, but he's he's different, but he's the same. So there is some type of master program, so to speak. Um, but like you said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, he is everyone and he's no one, um, but I think it kind of, uh, leads into, uh, one other thing that I, I did want to chat about with Smith that I think kind of leads into what we were talking about with him copying and, um, you know, like what his, you know, exactly who he is. And I think it also kind of leads into a little bit of like the, the whole code versus religious aspects. And that is really as we get to the end of the film that we see, you know, we see that Neo suddenly seemingly has these powers outside of the matrix. He's able to destroy the machines with a wave of his hand. But then you also see that agent Smith is also outside of the matrix that he has somehow copied himself onto a flesh and blood human. Uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's interesting. And, um, and I think it just kind of, it adds a whole nother layer, you know, to, to 
what is real and what is not real. And as you said, you know, is there is there a religious aspect to this or is it all just code or is it the code coming into the real world? Is the real world even the real world? You know, or is, uh, you know, is Zion something else, you know? Yeah. What a twist that would have been if if uh, if the real world ended up being just a secondary layer of the Matrix to keep us even more under. <laughs> Oh, man. That, that would actually be fascinating if that's what was revealed in Resurrections. I honestly would love something like that. <laughs> but um, but also, um, you know, we, we mentioned there's a dichotomy between faith and um, and code. And I think in a way, it's not always an antagonistic dichotomy, but sometimes sometimes there is a root similarity. I mean, what is Pro, from a machine thinking perspective, what is the difference between prophecy and an algorithm running its script? Like, is is there a difference? It's it's kind of true because you know you kind of ask yourself, well, you know what at its what it at its at its root foundation, what is prophecy? It's predicting an event that has not yet happened. Well, according to a machine or a code, that would be fairly easy to do because if you've written the entire code for the entire program, how easy is that to include a pop-up notification <laughs> you know, early on in the code that says, hey, this is going to happen later on. And then, of course, you wrote it, so it's going to. Well, it's like a, it's like a video game in a sense. Like uh, that, 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 That's what they do is they predict what will happen and show it for its simulation, you know? So in in a way, like there is this, this difference between humanity and machine, this idea of faith, faith that something will come through that is functionally mechanically undifferent when you strip it down to both humanity in Morpheus, for example, is having faith that Neo will come through and deliver them. And the architect is, though he would not say so, having faith that his calculations are so precise and correct that the restart of Zion is inevitable and coming as well. There is a a parallel between the two that is not always an antagonistic relationship but sometimes a similarity. And I think that's what's being expressed here. And and I think that carries through into revolutions because I think the the resolution between these warring factions kind of brings a unity to those perspectives. Yeah. Um, Ryan, this goes back directly into what you were talking about earlier with the similarities between faith and mechanical thinking. And I'm glad you, you brought us back to that because, and I think this is an area where theology probably could uh, play a really interesting role in helping us untangle this knot. Um, yeah. Determining the difference between a prophecy and an algorithm, you can take any, any number of tacks. You could argue that maybe, the difference between a prophecy and an algorithm is that at some point a major party will actively intervene. They aren't simply playing the, the percentages. 
Right. They aren't saying, hey, I've made this calculation and according to what I know about you with 99.8% accuracy, you're going to do X, Y, or Z. You know, sometimes in a prophecy, the principal will put their finger on the scale, but then sometimes it does look like an algorithmic uh, type of statement. You know, if you do X, Y, and Z, then I realize, well, knowing what I know about people in the world, then this will happen. I know human nature and humans will do this, so this will happen. So I think there's substantially different types of prophecy or or oracular function that um yeah like there are questions that probably can't be answered by strictly uh deterministic thinking and i think this is kind of one of the the issues that reloaded does struggle with uh they, they want to provide mystery and uh suspense while also talking about control and deterministic logic so figuring out exactly how those things work together, I think, is really difficult if you don't import other other means of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I think also with uh, an, another difference, I would say, between the two is in the case of the machines, we have, contrary to their assertions otherwise, imperfect, uh, imperfect thinkers that the machines are capable of incredible feats of prediction given a, a large enough data set, but they are also capable of mistakes. And that's why the architect as a program could not construct a matrix by himself because he is limited in his capacity to understand humanity, human freedom, Again, contrary to his assertions otherwise, um, and yet it required, in order to stabilize the Matrix, a maternal figure who was more intuitive and more in line with, with what humanity thinks. And uh, I, I, I raise the question that the Oracle herself raised in the previous film about the vase. You know, would you have broken it? If I hadn't said anything. So sometimes. In the case of both prophecy. And in the case of. Mechanical prediction. We're dealing not with. A straight line path. But a conditional. And that conditional. May end up. With a, a free agent. In the middle of it. Um, which is ironically where this movie comes to a climax. We have a, an incredibly well-constructed rail that ends up with Neo facing the architect. And every point to that, or every every step to that point has been meticulously planned, predicted, and, and plotted you know obviously there are a few things that have gone awry i don't think the machines anticipated in fact they later on say did not anticipate the whole smith thing they did not anticipate that neo would would completely localize his love of humanity into a single person um but generally speaking good job you got him to the door 
but at the end of the day, that agent has to make a choice. And, and that is, uh, it's unclear, at least within the Matrix universe, whether or not that proves anything wrong other than the machine's ability to predict uh, what is going to come next. I hate to return to this idea of sexuality and control, but one of the things that the Wachowskis did with the character of Persephone is they took the idea of erotic control from the most obvious of characters, the arrogant Merovingian, and put it into the emotionally manipulative uh, mouth of another uh, program, uh, Persephone. And as I was rewatching, I thought to myself, yeah, one of the things that we've seen from Hollywood over the last uh, couple of years of the Me Too era is that sometimes control, and particularly erotic control, sexual desire, isn't just about the overt domination of the most obvious candidates. Sometimes it's it's the lesser kind of insidious emotional manipulation tied to, I don't know, career advancement or the achieving of goals that can also lead to domination as well. And again, I, I, I don't feel like this is necessarily the point of the Persephone character, but I thought that the, I, that the fact that they put like this into the mouth of that character was, was actually really interesting. So again, I, I'm not trying to say that they were arguing that somehow um, more overt types of domination are less intrusive, but I, I do think they, 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 were, they were interested in bringing up the idea that less overt coercion can still be coercion and it can stand between people and their goals mm-hmm. which again is, is just not really a, something that we see uh that we see a lot of in mainstream media like i think it's kind of something that we all kind of sub- subconsciously know but we're not willing to really bring it out for discussion so again like again mad props to the Bukowskis for bringing that up and like they kind of frame it as a as a pathetic moment for persephone she's finally getting something she hasn't had in years. But at the same time, like, again, you're thinking about systems of domination, oppression, and control. And Persephone's kind of got her own one going. And the fact that she kind of places it in the sympathetic framing doesn't make it any better. Again, maybe maybe, maybe I'm really just being too tough on the character. but But I think, like, you know, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think also... It, it ends up being kind of ironic that the the weak point, the thing that undoes both the Matrix as a whole and the Merovingian in specific, and, and I'm going to oscillate between the general and the specific here, is the fact that starting out, starting out, the Merovingian and Persephone's relationship, at least according to Persephone, appeared specific, you know, whereas over time he grew a more uh, general erotic taste. And we can see that in the, the restaurant scene, you know, 
And so Persephone is just kind of existing on, but she does miss that specificity in their relationship. Uh, if, if I may permit the term relationship, which may not be exactly right here. Uh, but again, like the, the, the error that the, that the matrix as a whole, the machines as a whole make is in thinking that Neo is going to take this specified love and, and apply it generally to humanity and choose all of humanity over his specified love of, of Trinity. And what's funny is Persephone's entire desire that, that little test was about trying to experience that specified love again that she sees that Neo has for her. And so we have a prediction, in a sense, that Neo will not choose to go to the source and restart Zion, but will instead choose Trinity over, over the general, which is something the Merovingian can't fathom. It's something the architect can't fathom. And it's something that the more intuitive programs and the more intuitive people can fathom. It, and I, that ties into that erotic core that, that, we, that you brought up, Kiefer, because it is expressed in sexualized ways every time except with the merrymaking in Zion <laughs> early on, which is a more general... <laughs> Uh, stores but yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a really good point ryan to point out that um this this is a great example of the wakowski's um subverting expectations like they set it up so that neo is willing to do anything to get what he wants and he'll allow his specified love for trinity to be you know partially set aside in the service of the larger goal and so he you know he kisses persephone and so we're, we're kind of given this hint that, you know, Neo is going to be like the, the person to make the really hard choice to save all of humanity and let Trinity die. But it's exactly as you say. They subvert that expectations by, by showing that the specified love that Neo has for Trinity cannot be finally put aside for anything. And again, like they just do a great, great job of like, providing suspense by showing us one thing that'll make us believe that hey you know neo's going to give it all up he's going to give trinity up in order to save humanity and then actually showing us that he does the exact opposite but again just great filmmaking and and, and writing from them there was an interesting since we were talking about the morbingian um uh, an interesting point that that was very briefly mentioned in the film and it was kind of curious to me and i don't know if it was just I was reading too much into it, but there was a, a line where uh, Persephone is talking about him. And I, I think she's talking to Neo and she mentions that she says like, oh, he wasn't always like this. He used to be like you. And so it almost made me wonder, like, was the Moravingian almost supposed to have been some type of prototype anomaly that ended up not going in the direction and ended up going just to be selfish, self-serving, you know, underworld type figure i don't know i wasn't i wasn't sure if there was more to that uh, more to that statement or if it was more just a, a throwaway statement yeah i think it depends on in what way he was more like neo mm -hmm. um is it 
monogamous? Is that the way, or is it, uh, is it uh, something deeper? And it may be like considering that the Merovingian is in a way a computer equivalent of the one, uh, because he woke up some rebels, so to speak, except they just happened to be machine rebels mm-hmm. and started his own thing. It, it's obviously not Zion. It's not a, a good place per se. It's not a good machine and a good purpose. Uh, but as a program, he does sort of fit a, a proto or a, um, an anomaly analogous figure in a sense. So there's some possibility to that. I think, I think that's interesting what you say of almost being like a, like a machine, you know, version in some ways to Neo. And I think there is, there is definitely some, some truth to that because uh, when you look at, you know, cause I feel like the Wachowski, they put in so much different little symbolism stuff that, you know, Persephone, you know, herself, you know, she was named after a Greek goddess who was the wife of Hades, who was, you know, king of the underworld. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. That, uh, I kind of like that idea almost of the Moravingian being this kind of like corrupted program version of a Messiah that ended up instead of going in a good direction, freed everyone and just went into his own underworld of control. Well, he, he was like this simulation that they ran to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and then, and then mm-hmm. after he was done, it was like, okay, no, that's actually, yeah, that, that's a good point. Cause you would say the architect, you know, he talked about running simulations. He talked about fixing it. Well, you could say was the more of engine, a, a, a beta test of what the, of what the human anom- anomaly would have been. And the program went, went out of control or was just discarded after being used. Yeah. It's certainly a possibility. Yeah. It makes sense to me. What do we think? So we've we've done a lot of talking in the Matrix, per se. Um, What do we feel like there are two new uh, hovercraft crews introduced here? Um, There's Zion and the Council introduced here. Um, You know, we've we've focused a lot on the machine side of this stuff. What do we feel about uh, the... I didn't even notice. I used the word logos earlier, and one of the, the hovercraft is the logos. <laughs> what do we feel about like uh, uh, Jada Pinkett as a uh, Niobe, and uh, I can't remember the Hammer's captain's name or the the actor's name, but uh, what do we feel about those people? I mean, I think they're just great characters. You know, I um, it, it's interesting to see the 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 um kind of cult leader not not in a bad way but like the the cult leader morpheus like attached to the real world through uh, what seems to be a form of flame and and i appreciate the way that they have um jadis pinkett smith's character kind of attracted to the two poles of of human reality there's like the cold rationalist lock i need all of my ships here to protect us against the the machines, and then you have the the faithful person that's inspired by the oracle, who is never the same after he has his religious experience, 
He becomes almost reckless in his defiance sometimes of his commanders because he believes that he's finally found the one. So like you, you kind of have her um, not as quite an audience stand-in, but as a means for explaining um, the central conflicts of humanity that are kind of replicated in the city of Zion. So I, I think she's a really interesting character. Um, I don't think there's quite enough of her. I'd like to see more of her of her life um, between those two poles. But um, yeah, I, I was I was a big fan. That's a that's a great point that you make of of her almost being like an audience stand-in because I think that there is a lot of truth to that. You know, because you kind of see, you know, in her her limited screen time, but you do see that, you know, some of the statements that she makes of where she says, you know, um, basically she doesn't know if she believes the whole prophecy or the religious aspect of it. But at the same time, she's desperate enough. She's willing to consider it. And I feel like that's almost kind of like how the audience feels that they're not 100% sure what they're seeing or what's what's real, but they want to believe in Neo as a as a character. There's there's also a bit of a dynamic between and it, it, it's probably in a way biblically informed, uh, but I've noticed that the leadership and the the fighters themselves are way, way, way more likely to be skeptical of Neo than the average Zion civilian. Or civilian might be the wrong word, because really, uh, by the end of this, nobody is a civilian. But but the average citizen of Zion is incredibly willing and eager to accept Neo as the one and to to believe in Morpheus' proselytizing of Neo Whereas the leadership, the higher ups, uh, and and the individual fighters are way more skeptical, and part of that may just be experience and cynicism, <laughs> and, and and having actually engaged with the matrix as a construct enough, or if not the matrix as a construct, in the case of the council, with this war against the machines enough that they don't feel the luxury of of having that kind of faith and even if they feel the tug for it they're they're focused more on the mission you know and and we do get that with our uh with our other ship captains and variations of that amongst the crew uh i just i think it's an interesting dynamic that you know, this is a story about a, a messianic figure in a sense, and in in Zion, you have a whole spectrum of reactions to that. In the Matrix, it's kind of funny because, like, I, the machines obviously treat him as this messianic figure, um, which ultimately ends up being subverted in the end because Neo doesn't know it, but he's inadvertently an agent for them. Um, or at least up to a point is. <laughs> no, that that's very that that is very true. That like it's almost like he's fed, you know, the the messianic message, um, you know, and that uh, that's a great point, man. It's interesting too because uh, I almost kind of felt like with you know um, with Morpheus with his relationship, you know, with the other captains and with his relationship to the council and such that it felt almost very much like 
the Phantom Menace a bit. Like he almost felt like a Qui-Gon Jinn character. Um, you know, that the other council members don't really like him all that much and they don't really like his viewpoints. They feel he's overly reliant on faith. Um, and they're both kind of focused on a messianic figure. Um, you know, Jen obviously is looking for, you know, the chosen one, you know, in the, in the, um, in the person of Anakin, you know, and we have Morpheus looking at Neo. And so I kind of felt that, that kind of, uh, um, that kind of parallel was kind of interesting. You're right that they don't necessarily seem to like him that much, but he has, he has something that every true zealot does. He's got that gift of belief and belief will take you really far regardless of how other people feel about you personally. And I think you, you, you get a glimpse of that. Um, you get a glimpse of how zealotry like powers the citizens of Zion, just like as Ryan was mentioning, that you know, maybe the captains and maybe the, the council isn't necessarily behind Morpheus, but the way that he gets up and he winds the crowd up. It's interesting that he gives that speech and not Neo. Neo is the person that, you know, the the the, the weak have to see when he gets there, that they believe in him, but the person that can inspire them is the prophet to the godlike figure. It's Morpheus, not Neo. Hmm. That's very true. Yeah, you see like uh, Morpheus is almost like a John the Baptist type character almost. Um, and I think it's also kind of interesting too that in uh, in a way, when you look at the, the mythology of the Matrix, you see that of Neo being a tool in the sense that he, for the humans, he's a tool of Morpheus who's trying to save humanity, who's trying to bring hope and fearlessness. And then to the machines, he's a tool also in order to keep the system running and to make sure that humans are still docile and still being used as the batteries that they are. Yeah, it, 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 to, to the machines, he is the uh, system reboot kind, of, which, let, let, let me comment as well, let me just make a joke. Uh, they missed an opportunity not to call the next one The Matrix Rebooted. I was really hoping for that, honestly. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but <laughs> jokes aside, um, I I think uh, I I want to correct perhaps an imprecision with something you said, Byron. And I I don't think he meant it necessarily. Where you said that Morpheus is sort of using Neo as a tool, uh, but we can't discredit the fact that Morpheus is definitely a genuine believer in what he's saying. It's less. Less Jim Jones and and more John the Baptist, and I know that's not the the intent in what you were saying. I just wanted to clarify. Oh, def- definitely agree. Yeah, and I, and I think that was a, a bit of a poor choice of words on my on my part. That you know that while he is you know being used by him, it's not in a selfish way. It's not. It it is in a true believer sense that you know he feels he's found the object of his faith. You know, and so he he is you know, using that in order to fulfill, you know, what's happening. But yeah, it, it's done in a very benevolent way. I agree with you. Yeah. And you, you notice that Morpheus is kind of in the center. Like, for instance, when they walk to the Merovingian, like he has that place of authority, you know, and maybe and get, maybe the word tool isn't necessarily apropos, but they have a very interesting relationship. Neo is the one that has the power, but Morpheus sometimes seems to be like the leader. Yeah, I definitely do feel that way in this film and even in the beginning a little bit in the first one that, yeah, that uh, Morpheus does definitely feel that way. 
and almost i think that kind of reinforces his uh the image of him as like John the Baptist, because you even see in like the Bible, once Jesus had come along that, you know, the followers of John the Baptist were going to John the Baptist and were saying, is this guy okay? You know, is this, is this who you were talking about? Like he still operated with that authority with those disciples in a sense. So I, that's a, that's a great point. Kiefer. Yeah, I think it's uh, sort of the difference between the Herald and the King, you know, like in a way, and and I think Neo is still very uncomfortable with his role as the one as it pertains to Zion. Like, I get the distinct impression that he is way more comfortable in the Matrix than he is in the real world, which makes sense as an extension of his character because he's essentially a hacker. You know, it makes sense that uh, his comfort is in manipulating a machine. And back at home, back at Zion, in the real world, he's a lot less comfortable with that, the one title, that the, the expectations that are laid on him and the, the, the weight of that. He, he seems almost like, it, another, another expression would be like a Moses to Aaron comparison, where Morpheus is the PR guy, the public face of, of this idea. And, and there's some insecurity on Neo's part that, uh, that he doesn't quite have the faith and confidence that even Morpheus has. That's a That's a great, I love that point that you mentioned about how Neo is more comfortable in the matrix, you know, than he is in real life. And, I feel that that is very accurate. And I think that they're almost kind of going back to that a little bit in uh, Resurrections because there's a line in the trailer where I can't, uh, can't remember which character, but they're talking to Neo and they say basically about the machines, it seems that they said, oh, they made you believe that this world was all you deserved, you know, and, and it kind of showcased that he wanted to stay in the matrix. You know, he was taking all of the blue pills. And so I think that kind of goes back a little bit towards that, that he is more comfortable in that world than, than in the real world. And at the, yet, yet at the same time, the end point of his journey is bringing that ability <clears throat> to manipulate and to destroy and to uh, uh, interact with machines into the real world. The end point of his journey in this movie is becoming more that messianic figure outside of the matrix uh, than he has ever been before. No, that's very much so. Cause you know, without skipping ahead too much, you know, with, with uh, revolutions, you know, he spends a vast majority of that film, you know, outside of the matrix, you know, uh, most of it is spent in the real world. Um, you know, and I, I remember that was kind of one of the criticisms of that film was that it was mostly in Zion and everything that it wasn't quite as much in the in the fun world of the Matrix anymore. Um, oh man, yeah, that's that's some good points, man. Well, you know, um, you know, as we kind of come to the the end here, like what what is some final final thoughts that that you each have of this film, like as you revisited it, as you rewatched it, and like what you think of it? I was just surprised at how well most of it holds up like i think a lot of the cgi complaints um maybe from the courtyard fight with the smiths and then from the flying scene are fair 
Um, I don't think they're necessarily overstated. It's more that um, they are overemphasized to the exclusion of so many other things. I think there's a lot going on in this film that should be given a lot of credit by critical eyes and by fan eyes. I think the type of philosophical depth that they were attempting here um, is unfairly criticized as being too um, insular or too pretentious. But in reality, I think it's it's the way that it has to go to tell like a fully orbed neo story over the course of three films they needed to take the time in one of the films to really explore the limits of how determinism works and to explore how neo was tethered to trinity uh, through their romantic connection and how that connection would override all of his other concerns they needed to bring up smith as a real antagonist to neo and and, and so all of that that kind of narrative depth and complexity and, and subtlety um, is buttressed by the fact that, again, we have some of the best fight scenes, some of the best physical action scenes ever in Western cinema. So when we're talking about great sequels, you know, maybe Reloaded isn't The Godfather or The Dark Knight, but it is something very special. It's a worthy companion to one of the best movies of all time, The Matrix. And I, and I think we as a critical community again should take this movie more seriously and those are my those are my thoughts on it like i i know we we talked a lot about the philosophy we talked a little bit about um erotic desire but but overall my my main thrust of my conversations about matrix reloaded is that i wanted to get the respect that i believe it deserves like any movie with both the uh both the highway fight and the fight versus the hench the henchman in the chateau is a film that deserves to be rated much, much, much higher by fans and by critics. That was my rant. Yeah, I I co-sign all of that. I I think uh <laughs> I think it is, as I said, a very underrated film altogether. I think there are problems with it. I think the the CGI, especially in the courtyard and the flying, are incredibly dated, and it was pretty ill advised, I think, to to presume that at this time a fully CGI fight sequence of that scale was plausible to hold up over time. I think that it it has a lot of weightlessness to it in that in that particular sequence. And then you have issues with with pacing, where we go from breakneck speed and incredible, phenomenal action sequences to deep table talk on incredibly deep uh, philosophical issues that if you're watching for the first time, you may have to rewind to fully grasp what's being said. In the same film, it can coexist. The Matrix proved it could coexist. The problem, I think, with Reloaded is that it is the Matrix and. It is all of the strengths and all of the weaknesses of the Matrix amplified incredibly. But I think, to Kiefer's credit, to echo, you know, I try not to repeat too much, and but I, I have to echo his sentiment that yes we have that courtyard sequence yes it is 
it doesn't hold up very well. I think that that's fair to say. But in that in this same movie, you have that chateau fight. You have the freeway sequence, and and those each either one of those would have been a standout in in any franchise. It would have been the the scene of any franchise. It's it's criminal that this film has two of those kinds of fight sequences and is almost forgotten. I think that's so so accurate, you know, with this uh with this film because I feel much the same way as you guys. I think it's incredibly underrated. Um I think it did it did so much for for the blockbuster and this the action film in general and you know, it is strange to me, you know, that when you, especially with the action, you know, that we have, we have these incredible, incredible sequences and that it feels like the film gets dragged down for just some of the smallest, you know, little things, you know, it's like, you know, I, I agree that I feel that the Wachowski's got a little over ambitious with some stuff like the courtyard scene, you know, that uh, on paper, you know, it was fantastic, but you know, the barriers of technology at the time, you know, were something that probably should have been addressed a little bit and it could have been addressed even in just the sense of, you know, setting the sequence at dusk, you know, in a little bit darker of an environment, you know, so the CGI wasn't as noticeable. There was a few things like that, but I really do applaud the fact that they were so, they were so brave and tenacious and wanting to film something like this years before it was something that was happening. But, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, I would like to see this film be more appreciated, you know, as time goes on, because I think that when you look at it with the critical eye, when you look at it with the philosophical eye, you really see that there is a huge amount to unpack. And, and I don't know, I, I think that sometimes the more controversial a film is, it's kind of sometimes uh, a sign of, you know, that it has more to offer, you know, that, uh, you know, when people are debating it and when they're constantly talking about it, I mean, you know, look, this film came out what in 2003, I think it was, um, or 2004, maybe, uh, you know, and look, we're still, we're having a podcast now, you know, almost 20 years later, you know, dissecting it and saying, Oh, there's still unanswered questions and stuff. And I think that that just kind of showcases, in my opinion, what a classic it is, you know, it's not perfect, you know, it has its, its, its things. It doesn't quite hold up to the first one, but you know, it's a worthy sequel, I would say. Well, I would like to thank you guys for uh, for coming on to Under the Lens to uh, to discuss uh, this film. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's not every day that I get to, to get to delve into uh, into discussions of theology and and action and stuff. So it, it was definitely a lot of fun. Um, uh, but uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and uh, let people know uh, where they can follow you and what you're what you're up to. Oh, sure. Like the main thing is like I I don't really care so much for the social media stuff, uh, but uh, I do run a trivia game, the Raw Quiz Show. It is a trivia game for the 21st century. It is all about direct competition. Uh, We are uh, working on a new season. That's right. I said season because uh, it carries over week to week. Uh, until there is one champion standing. And uh, I'm working on getting together a a full slate of six combatants to fight it out in trivia uh, for for the entertainment of others and uh, the amusement of myself. So you can check out the Raw Quiz Show on YouTube. Uh, There's uh, an incredible back catalog of episodes for you to watch there. It's it's trivia, it's fun, and 
I think uh, I've always been a genuine believer that uh, when you're creating content, if you're having fun, then uh, then they're having fun. So come check out the Raw Quiz Show on YouTube. What about you, Kiefer? <laughs> uh, cool. You can find me on Twitter at Kiefer Win Writes, K-E-I-F-E-R-W-Y-N-N. That's where I repost uh, the content that I come up with, whether it's uh, music with my band uh, under the name Cold Comfort on Spotify and SoundCloud, or if it's um, writing, usually with Pop Culture Reviews at Pop Culture Reviews on Twitter. So happy to talk to anybody uh, who reaches out to me on those platforms and just keep an eye out for the stuff we do in the future. Well, thanks. Thanks again, guys, for, for coming on. And, uh, you know, uh, for you, the listeners, uh, feel free to follow um, follow the uh, Byron Lafayette show on uh, Facebook, which is what um, Under the Lens is listed under. And uh, also, you can uh, feel free to follow me on uh, Vero um, under the same name, uh, at Byron Lafayette, and uh, under the same handle on Twitter. I'm getting more active on Twitter and um, posting a lot more of my content, but I read a lot of articles and I do a lot of uh, interviews and podcasts. So uh, feel free to look me up on there and uh, happy listening.